The Grifters began life as a down and dirty novel written by Jim Thompson in 1963. A gifted and unique writer, little recognised during his lifetime, Thompson's profile reached its height in the mid-1950s when he arrived in Hollywood to collaborate with Stanley Kubrick. The aim was for Thompson to adopt Lionel White's pulp novel, Clean Break. By all accounts, Thompson did almost all of the writing, but when it came to divvying up the credits for the heist picture, which had by then been retitled The Killing, Kubrick took the lion's share, tossing to Thompson a meagre acknowledgement of additional dialogue. Like the man said, life is like a glass of tea. Huh? Although The Killing did no business, it was critically well received, and soon, and despite the credit insult, Thompson was back collaborating with Kubrick once more, this time on the anti-war classic Paths of Glory. I apologize, sir, for not telling you sooner that you're a degenerate, sadistic old man, and you can go to hell before I apologize to you now or ever again. When that one finished, Kubrick recognised Thompson's input and credited him accordingly. But once again, although the film was critically well-received, it did no business. Yet, Thompson hung in with Kubrick and started to work on a third script, a Kubrick original called Lunatic at Large. It is a dark mystery filled with puzzles, the greatest of which is who, amongst several plausible candidates, is the true escapee from a nearby mental hospital. Thompson wrote a treatment, Kubrick was happy with it, but then Kubrick was called up by Universal Studios to make Spartacus. The production promised Kubrick his first proper paycheck, so the lunatic story slipped away from Thompson and Kubrick never returned to it. Still, Thompson kept writing his novels, but the only contact he had with Hollywood after that came in the early 70s, when Robert Redford contracted him to write a screenplay about the life of a hobo during the Great Depression. The reason Redford chose Thompson was because Thompson had begun his writing career in the late 1920s. And although his work was exclusively fiction, what he really did in those days was to take news stories he read in the papers and fabulate them into fiction, often using a first-person narrative to carry his own voice. But it was the life that Thompson had led before his 20s that convinced Redford that a strong story could be written. Originally from Oklahoma, Thompson's family left for the state of Texas when he was still a child. And by the time he was in his teens, he was working as a bellhop at a local hotel, where he was often occasioned to serve the guests with all manner of illegal goods. This was the time of prohibition, but alcohol proved to be the milder product as he procured heroin for the customers as well. After that, he headed to Kansas City, where he was targeted by the Mafia, almost beaten to death by a psychopathic police officer before suffering a nervous breakdown. All of that by the age of 19. Despite these first-hand experiences, Thompson's hobo script did not sufficiently impress Redford, and the only writing contact he had with Hollywood after that was in 1972, when his novel The Getaway was brought to the screen by Sam Peckinpah. Listen, there's something I want to see. I don't want to hear well, about listen, it. It's hard enough for me as it is. The things you said before, you might be right. Not gonna mean anything if we don't make it together. I don't think we can make it. I think if we ever get out of this dump, I'll just split. Thompson's death in 1977 
was brought on by his long-term alcoholism, and when he passed, none of his novels were in print. The Grifters, released in 1990, went a long way to reviving Thompson's reputation. Initially offered to Martin Scorsese to direct, the project wound up on the desk of Stephen Frears, after Scorsese decided he wanted to make Goodfellas instead. Scorsese had seen several of Frears' work, notably The Hit and Dangerous Liaisons, and Scorsese decided that Frears was better suited to the subject. So, Frears, who never writes the scripts to his films, contracted another great, tough scribe, Donald Westlake, to adapt Thompson's novel. Westlake was a prolific writer, often publishing under pseudonyms such as Richard Stark, Alan Marshall and Tucker Coe. But whichever name he used, Westlake won several awards and his most successful creation was a character named Parker, a criminal who appeared in 16 of his novels, the first of which, The Hunter, opens with Parker being shot and left for dead by his partner and wife before setting out on a ruthless trail of revenge. If that sounds familiar, it's because in 1967, it was turned into a brilliant film, Point Blank, starring Lee Marvin and directed by John Borman. What's his name? Walker. What's his first name? He never called himself anything but that. I've known him for years. Not even his wife. Wife have something to do with his grudge? Yeah. The Grifters enjoys many unique qualities, but perhaps what is most unique about this crime drama is that for once it is women who outnumber the men. Roy Dillon is a con man whose small-time operation is disrupted by his new girlfriend, Myra, and the return of his estranged mother, Lily. The story is deliciously dark and seedy, with an ending that is so bleak it'll take you days to work your way back to the sunlight. To give you an indication as to just how dark and seedy the story is, when Frears asked Westlake to write the screenplay adaptation, Westlake said the book was so bleak that even he didn't want to do it. But Frears persisted and found just enough of a silver lining for Westlake to change his mind. You hear about the oranges, Lily? You hit a person with the oranges wrapped in a towel. They get big, ugly-looking bruises, but they don't really get hurt, not if you do it right. It's for working scams against insurance companies. And if you do it wrong? It can last up your insides. You can get... What? Permanent damage. You never shit right again. After that, Frears went about finding his cast. John Cusack, who was barely 24 at the time, lobbied hard and won the male lead role of Roy Dillon. Cusack had read the novel as a teenager and had long harbored dreams of turning it into a movie. Show me how you did that other one. Scram. Oh, I can't, I just left home. You're too young, you ought to be in school. I am in school. 
the part of Lily, Frears initially approached Cher, who had just won an Oscar for her performance in Moonstruck. She considered the role for a while, but her asking price was too high. So Frears then started pursuing Angelica Houston. Houston had also won an Oscar a few years before. In Pritzi's Honor, directed by her father, John, she had delivered a tasty turn in what was a darkly comedic crime picture. But Houston, who was by then busily starring in Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors, said no. Melanie Griffith was then approached to play the role of Myra. And while she might have been right, it was Annette Benning whose audition captured the essence of what Frears wanted. After that, Houston came back to say she had changed her mind and so Frears had his cast. Briefly, the actors each deliver superb performances, but sometimes you get the feeling that you're looking at human beings in a zoo. By that I mean, each one of them subtly resembles an animal. Cusack cuts through his scenes like a shark slipping silently through the waters. Houston's performance can only be described as feline. Quick, slinky and watchful, she is always looking out for herself. And finally, Benning is a hare. But even though she is always alert to all dangers, she is ultimately caught in the glare of the headlights. You were bleeding inside, honey. Remember that bruise you had? You called the doctor, huh? Well, no, Roy. Your mother did. Yeah? Thanks. How long did they say until I can get out of here? Roy, your mom saved your life. second time I gave it to you. Stephen Frears is a director who has worked across a variety of genres and his style, nearly imperceptible, varies from each one, yet always remains the same. He directs through the script and casting and doesn't concern himself too much with the technical elements. Because of that, you rarely see a visual flourish or experience a sudden rupture to the rhythm. That is not to say his films are bland, it's just that he blends the tone to fit the story. However, since The Grifters comes laden with a noir pedigree, there are a few moments where style does flourish. For instance, we get a terrific opening credit sequence, which shows us a series of still images of Los Angeles, all in black and white, accompanying Elmer Bernstein's brassy score. And together, it serves as a reminder of the city from decades gone by. It recalls such films as The Big Combo, The Big Heat, and John Huston's The Asphalt Jungle. But Frears is not trying to seduce us with nostalgia. The past is long dead, and the corpse has been left out to rot in the daylight. And whether it be at day or night, director photography Oliver Stapleton seems to have not so much filmed the scenes as much as burned them onto celluloid. The daylight sequences regularly come with a singed orange look, while the night scenes have shadows that are as thick as charcoal. After that, we are introduced to the central characters in a manner that is anything but old. The screen divides into three vertical sections so that we get to see who the characters are and thus get a hint as to what they do. It's a neat but essential trick because without it, the story would have had to have jumped back and forth between the characters 
and thus the story would have stalled even before it had started. Roy Dillon, cornball clown pictures, commissioned salesman. It's all a front. You're working some angle, and don't tell me you're not, because I wrote the book. You want to talk? You still want to play back money for the mob? That's me. That's who I am. You were never cut out for the rackets, Roy. How come? You... you aren't tough enough. Not as tough as you, huh? How'd you get that punch in the stomach, Roy? I tripped on a chair. Get off the grift, Roy. Why? You haven't got the stomach for it. Later on, as the plot dips ever deeper into the dark underworld, there is a sequence where Myra heads out to a hotel in the Arizona desert. There, Frears infuses a deliberate feeling of deja vu into the proceedings by mimicking the sequence from Psycho, where Marion Crane decides to drop in to a certain motel. It's a playful move, but also sets in place the sense that something very unpleasant is about to be visited upon one of the guests. And finally, the ending. Dark and decrepit as it is, it is not without its own playful side. We see one of the characters entering into an elevator, and the elevator begins its descent to the basement. Symbolism aside, it is also another blithe allusion to another Hollywood classic, the Maltese Falcon. That also ends with a woman stepping into an elevator. And who directed that film? Angelica Houston's father, John. The Grifters was nominated for four Oscars and deserved more. It deserved a few wins as well. But since this is a Jim Thompson story, there is never going to be a happy ending. 